1: All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month and 6 months of Paramount Plus Essential plan on us. Mintmobile.com/switch.
0: Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month, unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month, face lower speeds, videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 53124 get 6 months of Paramount Plus Essential plan auto-renews after 6 months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG.
1: Hello everybody, this is Marshall Poe on the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them, so we thought we'd tell you that.
2: Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. It's my pleasure today to speak with Dr. George McLeod about his new book, Mediating Violence from Africa, Francophone Literature, Film and Testimony After the Cold War. George is associate professor of French at St. Mary's College of Maryland, and his book was published at the University of Nebraska Press in 2023. George, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
2: So I wanted to start by asking you a bit about the origins of this project. Um, You discuss in your book at several points how this project began for you as an undergraduate student. Um, So I'm wondering if you could speak more about that and also how it evolved over time.
1: Yeah. So I would say the real genesis for this project was studying abroad in Senegal uh, when I was an undergraduate at Bowdoin College. Uh, and I spent a year studying French and Francophone literature at a small university in Saint-Louis, which is in the north of Senegal. Um, And one of the things that really struck me during that time uh, was how my experience was really defined by the hospitality of my host family, uh, of the students that I met, the sense of community that I felt with them, you know, sharing tea and uh, late into the night and just having conversations. Um, And while certainly there were some economic and political issues that were foremost in their mind, uh, it was not at all an experience in Africa that mapped onto the kind of violence and the kind of um, portrayal that we often see in the media. Mm. But then when I returned back to, uh, to Bowdoin as a senior and wanted to do some more uh, High-level intellectual work and research related to Francophone Africa, uh, Alexander Doz Roth, who was my um, my mentor and thesis advisor, proposed working on literature uh, about the Tutsi genocide in Rwanda in 1994. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I, I've said before, in um, when talking about the book, that reconciling my own experience in Africa, which was very much defined by you know warmth and hospitality, and in a, a relatively stable uh, country contrasted with this intellectual interest in the genocide in Rwanda, which is one of the most extreme uh, events of the last 30 years you can read about, um, is something I think that informs the whole book. And so how to hold it together... Um, a vision of Africa, which at times like anywhere in the world can be defined by hospitality and community uh, and these really positive attributes, but also to give ethical visibility to survivors of the Tutsi genocide and other victims of political violence, but in a way that doesn't reinforce uh, stereotypes. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, that's, I would say that's, that's the genesis of the project. and. Uh,
2: yeah no thank you for that and and it's and it definitely um makes sense reading your books kind of seeing this question of mediation and how media distorts um uh the reality on the ground or or presents things in a way that that can be misleading. Um, so I, I wanted to kind of unpack some of the main themes of your book and the, the theoretical and historical framing with your um, the subtitle to your introduction, which I think says a lot in and of itself, which is iconic figures and post-Cold War mediations. So I guess to begin, you know, what are the main iconic figures that you identify in the book and how do you approach them? Like how do you use media theory and your reading of media to unpack them?
1: So the the book is structured around four iconic figures uh, associated with post-Cold War Africa, which I define as post-1989, essentially post-fall of the the Berlin Wall. Uh, The first chapter is about the child soldier. The second chapter is about the Islamist terrorist. Uh, The third chapter is about the Rwandan Tutsi survivor figure. And then the final chapter is about the celebrity humanitarian. Um, And I think what all of these figures have in common is that in mainstream media, they are very visible and recognizable. You know, I think most mm-hmm. people have maybe they've seen about maybe they've seen about the Kony. Uh, they've seen the Kony 2012 video uh, on on YouTube. Uh, certainly, they've seen represent, representation news reports about terrorists who are using Islam to justify their uh, their violence. Uh, they've um they've likely seen survivors or heard heard of the film Hotel Rwanda and seen its portrayal of survivors. And certainly, you know, maybe they've seen Saturday Night Live make fun of, you know, Madonna adopting Mm -hmm. uh, babies or Angelina Jolie adopting babies from Africa, for instance. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, what I became interested in was how much these icons uh, were also showing up in Francophone African literature and film Mm -hmm. and trying to understand how I could uh, put the way they were being represented by African authors, Francophone African authors, in dialogue with the media representations. Um, because what I found was that a lot of um, scholars were were treating the literature in relationship to other works of African literature. So if you had a work about a child soldier, they might put it um, in relationship to, well, earlier African but books from Francophone African authors about childhood, like Moi, mm. um, Black Child, by, by But what I wasn't seeing from anyone was that uh, the child soldier was also this heavily mediatized figure. uh, And that in fact, when you did some digging, you saw that there had been child combatants in Africa before the Cold War. Um, Mm. But so long as they were fighting communism, the mainstream media didn't really make too much of a a deal out of it. Mm. Um, And so those were the kind of connections between um, the way these figures were emerging in the media and then using that as a way to read texts that normally, and films that normally I found were put in relationship to other films from Francophone Africa, mm-hmm. but in fact were being consumed by people that would have a lot of other visions of these iconic figures. Um, and I found that to lead to some really interesting and new readings from these texts. Um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: And I, I feel like I only answered the first uh, part of your question. Um, but...
0: Uh, no,
2: no, but it's... but you know talking about this issue of you know media the the use of the media and mediations of these figures and so it seems like what you're saying is that the the francophone african authors that you're studying and filmmakers are very much conscious of these <laughs> of the ways in which these figures are mediated and they're kind of using that to inform they're responding to perhaps this mediation in a way that other that hasn't really been talked about enough
1: yeah and i think that's exactly right and and i think um uh, using the iconic figures so to give an example of the child soldier uh, in the very first chapter um, Allah is not obliged, Allah n'est pas obligé mm. Uh, is often marketed with a picture of a child soldier clutching a cl- uh, Kalashnikov on the on the front cover mm-hmm. um, and it starts with uh, this first person narration of a child soldier saying they've killed all these people and they've done all these things so it, it sort of it promises a kind of spectacular narrative of this grotesque image of the child per- perpetrating violence uh, which certainly is going to get readers' attention, um, and is the reason why the child soldier uh, has been featured in films. And uh, you know, the, the, at one point, the most viewed video in YouTube's history was this Kony 2012 video about fighting child soldiers, which became very controversial. But no. but uh, my argument uh, is is not that he's that Karuma, the author, is trying to show us the reality of being a child soldier in this novel. Uh, what he does is he gets our attention very slyly, I think, with the spectacular figure. But then you're halfway through this book and you, you say, wait, wait a second, I'm reading this vernacular first person uh, history of the Ivory Coast and colonialism. And I haven't had any descriptions of a battle. I don't know how he's using that of he allegedly has on the front cover. And mm-hmm. he, uh, and our expectations of this sort of spectacular um uh, graphic depiction of the figure are completely thwarted. Um, mm. But yet we are left sort of disturbed, maybe both by uh, what drew us to read this in the first place, maybe a an interest in this figure that was uh, somewhat purient. And then, uh, but we do walk away with, I think, a deeper emotional and political understanding of the child soldier figure. So it's not about, uh, and this is one of the main points of the book, um, it's not about... Uh, undoing the stereotype per se it's about reappropriating the stereotype and i referenced by uh, rosello's declining the stereotype um I, I need to give credit to her work on that um mm-hmm. it's about taking these iconic figures using them to get uh the viewer or the reader's attention and then leading them down a much different path and producing mm-hmm. a much different kind of knowledge and some of the authors and filmmakers i, I argue do this more successfully than others
2: right yeah and and yeah we can get into that too about how what what you've just described that there's different different ways in which the child soldier is deployed within francophone african literature so you're kind of contrasting different different uses of this figure but um but Before we dive more into that, I'm curious if you could just speak a bit um, about your choice to uh, periodize this this work in the post-Cold War period versus, um, you know, maybe using a term such as post-colonial or late 20th century or something like that that we often see. Um, How do how what do we gain from focusing on this particular time time frame?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And and. um... I certainly don't present it as you know the best way to periodize this, or are the, the only way way to periodize it, um, and it and it does have shortcomings as well to to frame production from francophone African from Africa in this lens. which is very much from a uh, Western geopolitics kind of perspective. Um, but what I found was uh, by situating them within that time period, you could draw this through line between. Um, say to come back to the child soldier uh this uh massive interest on the part of uh the un and the so-called international community in preventing child soldiers after the post-cold war and then explicit references within uh political science and anthropology uh, by scholars like david rosen referring to the child soldier as a post-cold war phenomenon um Mm -hmm. And it all of a sudden seemed that this perspective in terms of reading it as this post-Cold War icon, as opposed to just reading the child soldier as a product of violence in Africa, that there was something to be gained by looking at it from that perspective. Mm -hmm. And then... um, the t- The terrorist figure, which we associate, which September, with September 11th, also, when you look at uh, literature about the terrorist figure, crystallizes around the early 1990s and is situated as okay, we don't have a co- you know communism is no longer the boogeyman, but the just logic of the military-industrial international relations complex needs boogeymen, and so mm. the terrorist you find it even before 9/11 kind of slotted in to fill that role. Mm-hmm. Um, And then the tutsi survivor the tutsi genocide that narrative is in large part a narrative of what is explicitly called the u.n's post-cold war peacekeeping surge and the Mm -hmm. failure of that to prevent the genocide and so much of how the genocide was mediated early on was through the lens of that failure. And through the uh, Romeo Dallaire, the Canadian general who was on the ground and his PTSD uh, as uh, not being able to prevent the genocide. And of course, and I talked to some extent about how that narrative of, of post Cold War failure at first blocked out Tutsi stories. Um, and then later Tutsi survivor stories seemed to imply that that UN failure was safely in the past because everyone was reconciling and forgiving them. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and then the celebrity humanitarian um, uh, is also a figure that uh, is described in in the literature as a post Cold War figure, and I think also in the starting in the 90s and still today um, becomes a way that people learn about Africa. Um, mm-hmm. And I argue that uh, even when we uh, criticize these celebrity humanitarians and make fun of them, it's still a process through which we're centering them and mm-hmm. we're getting certain attention, and we're not getting any closer to really engaging with the the conflicts and the individual lived experiences of non-iconic people um that uh, that are focused on the celebrity humanitarian obscures so um mm-hmm. I, I hope that that answers your question that that I I found that all of them situating them in this framework helped me understand how they're being mediated and how authors and filmmakers were then responding to these, Post Cold -cold War mediations in their
2: works, right? Yeah, no, thank you. That was that was really helpful. Um, And maybe for a final um, framing question, you you also defend in your introduction the continued relevance or the importance of Francophone Africa in your in your book, as opposed to um, you know, I mean, I I suppose even acknowledging the fact that that uh, literature is increasingly we talk increasingly about the global and the transnational character of African production, but you know, and I think that this maybe comes into play more with the Rwanda chapter, and you talk about language and how Rwanda made the decision to switch from French to English. Um, but, you know, I, I guess what is the case for defending a specifically Francophone Africa um, production in, in this project?
1: yeah it's a really interesting question and and since the book uh came out or since the book went to press um you know there's some really high profile cases of in Mali, for instance uh, anti-french uh, rhetoric and protest mm-hmm. quite justified um if you look at the historical context and then uh france recently uh, retaliating by i think it was de- denying uh support for african artists who had been meant to to participate in, in french funded research and things like that so um You know, it's it's uh, an increasingly fraught relationship, I think, Mm. but, Mm -hmm. you know, the um, I think the the relationship, especially in the publishing industry and the film industry, I think that there there's a relationship between Paris and uh, the cultural production that goes through Paris is mediated through Paris, that Mm -hmm. uh, doesn't have a comparable uh, anglophone kind of, uh, uh, equivalent. I don't think London is to Anglophone Africa as par- uh, culture production, Anglophone culture production as Paris is to French culture production. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so not in a sort of, um, naive kind of celebratory, you know, Francophone color-coded map of, you know, the great Francophone community. I think that idea has mm-hmm. been debunked, but, but that the linguistic reality of this heritage has some specificities, um, in particularly with artistic production that are not, necessarily necessarily present I'm sure maybe there's some Anglophone experts listening who would dispute that <laughs> <laughs> but that there are at least um, something specific to the French context uh, that mm. that need to be um, unpacked and I you know in Timbuktu the film is a good example of that because it was heavily dependent on the French film uh, uh, f- French film production and then validation of the French film industry and and the um, filmmaker navigating that, as a way to bring visibility to uh, the victims of violence, Islamist terrorist violence in Timbuktu, is a part of the story of that film and how that film came to be. So, um, but again, I don't think it's either or. I mean, I think that you know, uh, people have done a lot of great work. Uh, you know, the Michael Rothberg and uh, you know the François Lyonnaise and the you know uh, minor transnationalism work that's been done is incredibly important. Um, I just wanted to situate my contribution, that conversation as focusing on some of the specific specificities of the Francophone region, but I'm hardly calling for a return to that such a, you know, sheltered and, uh, mm. um, closed off approach to looking at this cultural production.
2: Right. Absolutely. Um, and I wanted to point out something I found really refreshing and Interesting about your work is how in each chapter, well, you're not only tying in what's the the works you're looking at with kind of events, current events in in media production that you've some of which you've mentioned, but others we can we can talk about. But also, you're in at the conclusion of each chapter, you critically reflect on your own positionality um, with with personal anecdotes about your own experiences as a white Western researcher investigating these questions of violence and its representation and even at some times you admit being to some degree complicit in the forms of mediation that you're critiquing. Yeah, And so I'm curious if you could speak about, you know, your decision to put yourself sort of on display or not on display, but to, to interrogate your own positionality in this way. And, and maybe um, are you calling or suggesting that, that we should, other scholars should engage in this more.
1: Um, yeah, I, I wish other scholars would engage in it more. I mean, I understand why they don't. And and I would understand also if someone would choose not to, you know, uh, put themselves or, or center themselves in, in their work. Um, you know, for me, it was important uh, to do because, um, you know, as, as I mentioned in the book, my initial interest in Rwandan literature of the genocide, I think there was just some sort of fascination, almost voyeuristic fascination with what was going on. And, and it was traveling to Rwanda and meeting survivors and, you know, forming, you know, uh, relationships with survivors um, that helped me differentiate between the act of engaging with the, the, the literary mediation or the filmic mediation, and then actually um, going and interacting with people who have had that experience and thinking about what you're obligations are towards them you know the limits of what you can also do to intervene and to help right i think um you know if you look at the six billion dollars that went to the haitian earthquake that uh, haitian earthquake relief that people ask where that money went you know i think that Mm -hmm. knowing the limits of interventions possibilities are important too but um but to get back to your question um you know as a white scholar publishing about Africa, I think that's indispensable. Um, mm. I didn't. I've read positionality statements that were really at the beginning, and were just a lot of I phrases about the person and and who they were and all that kind of stuff. And I I purposely put it at the end of chapters because I, mm. you know, I wanted to I guess decenter the century of myself. <laughs> um, but I mean, I think you know, if you're writing about child soldiers, and then as as I did, you go to a conference and and see someone who used to be a child soldier talk about their experience and be met with complete silence, which in the room did not feel like a respectful silence, but a silence mm-hmm. of engaging further. And then noticing my own kind of hesitation to engage with someone who was out of place at this conference who had 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 this experience and noticing other people who went over to make an effort to talk to this individual. and and i hope i would uh now if i were in that position would have um appropriately interacted and and been hospitable in that way Mm -hmm. but i didn't feel that i could um write about the child soldier and write about the difference between literary and film mediation and in-person interaction without being honest about um Mm -hmm. my own kind of you know journey uh and and uh and fear and trepidation and times embarrassment. Um, you know, I think that's, that's really important. Um.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today that's shopify.com/system.
2: Mm. Well I found that to be really compelling and 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 I think that many people reading your book will identify or have similar moments where they realize that they you know that they've experienced something similar to what you're describing um and so I think it's and it's an important reflection i think in your work in particular where you're reflecting on these questions of of mediation and also as we'll get into later how the scholar is playing a role in in this process as well um uh, but that's more at the, at the end of the book but since you mentioned the child soldier um you know that was a really fascinating um chapter and and you talk about, you you've mentioned one of the books that you study but you you really are comparing two very closely um and and you the title of this chapter is using the child soldier soldier so you're really focusing on how this this image this icon is deployed as as um you know in, in the way of a bartesian myth or or a sign if you will and so what how are your um how does your contrasting of these two novels um in um show the the different ways in which this this figure is is used
1: yeah that, that's a great question so the, the two novels i look at are um Johnny Chimésho and Johnny Madzog by Emmanuel Dongala, who's from the uh, Republic of Congo, um, and uh, Amadou Kouroma, who I've already mentioned, Allah uh, la n'est pas obligé, A is not obliged." Um, both books are narrated in the first person by a child soldier. Both came out uh, in the early two thousands, around the same time, um, though the authors uh, do not, I think, have said that they did not have any collaboration. It was kind of a, a coincidence. Um, mm-hmm. of a sort. And the books are often compared to each other uh, because they're first person narratives, uh, first person novels narrated by a child soldier. They often have similar covers. I mean, the paratexts are often similar with a a child holding a gun and looking looking at the viewer, Um, but their narrative styles are incredibly different. And this was something that I was not seeing as much, um, in, in discussions of the books. I've seen more focus on the plot, uh, and less of this kind of really tight, uh, narratological analysis, which, um, under Lidi Mudolino and Jerry Prince at the University of Pennsylvania, I had, uh, had a lot of, um, experience and training and orientation in that way. Mm -hmm. And so when I started reading Johnny Mad Dog, what I noticed, uh, one thing I noticed was that it, um, well, it has actually two narrators. So there's a child soldier who narrates, a male child soldier named Johnny Bad Dog, and then there's a female uh, refugee named La- Laokole who uh, who narrates the alternate chapters. Uh, and I had just taken a course on the epistolary novel, and mm. so I was really struck by the alternating voices, the alternating first person voices, and and thinking about um, completely independent of the child soldier context that. Mm. Uh, first-person narration and alternating first-person narration as a narrative strategy and what the advantages of that were, uh, what the advantages of that. Um, but a, another thing that I, I noticed was that um, the way the first-person uh, narrative of Johnny shemeshon was written was really as if we were sitting there with him and he was talking to us. It was very mm-hmm. much um, that writing in the moment um, phrase you hear associated with epistolary, um, uh, with epistolary novels, um, and it really seemed as if we were to accept this as the un kind of unfiltered, unmediated thoughts of of this child soldier, and the same with the the female uh, refugee who was responding to him, um, and that we were we were meant to feel sympathy and empathy for this child soldier who was um, being manipulated by his superiors and was born into a cultural context con- context in which this was his only way to find community, mm-hmm. uh, and so. Uh, that was all. That was all well and good, but at the same time, um, I thought, well, what what makes this in some ways different from the child soldier narratives that are used to elicit empathy for fundraising or for political reasons or things like that? Um, and so, I ultimately land on the book is that um, I don't think that you can, in this context where empathy for the child soldier has become so politicized, I don't think you can read a straightforward narrative that's supposed to produce empathy about child soldiers and separate it from that that problematic context. Mm-hmm. And so um, uh, whereas when you read uh, Amadou Kuruma and Ali is not obliged, he very quickly dispenses with the idea that the child soldier, is uh, giving you his unmediated interiority, uh, mm-hmm. and at times he, he breaks the the illusion of that mediation by coming back to a frame narrative where the child soldier is screaming at his interlocutor, "Leave me alone! You know, go after yourself! I don't want to talk anymore." <laughs> um, and the the narrative strategies are not this kind of smooth. Uh, mm glimpse into someone else's mind but constantly kind of pulling you out of that illusion um, and I use Dominic LaCapra's Empathic Unsettlement as a way to understand what Kuruma is doing mm-hmm. so that he wants you to feel something when you when you read about the child soldier uh, protagonist but what he wants you to feel is not empathy mm. maybe even your expectation of empathy being subverted by his narrative style is part of the point and I think that's a good example of how post cold war context um uh where the child soldier becomes this way to generate empathy in a, in uh, western public for fundraising purposes maybe to justify some kind of american military intervention that mm-hmm. of empathy in the child soldier as a politicized modified thing changed the way how i read those novels um, mm. Gave me more critical distance to Johnny Chênechon and gave me a deeper appreciation for n'est pas Pouzorpiche.
2: That's really fascinating. Yeah, I, I really appreciate it because in the chapter you you make the argument that there needs to be or that there has been maybe not enough attention on the question of affect and emotion and empathy in in kind of as a theoretical framework for engaging with some of these texts mm-hmm. um and you uh yeah you really show how that how that functions on the narrative level which i found to be really fascinating and thinking also about tying it in with um current events your the beginning of your chapter you talk about how in the wake of the george george floyd protests in 20 in may 2020 that there was a twitter kind of flurry about whether or not the georgia national guard was was using uh also ch- children enlisting children to suppress these protests. So in a way you're kind of showing how this this figure of the child soldier is kind of being turned back on the US mm-hmm. in this kind of post post cold war context.
1: Yeah, I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, it was it was an image of um I think it turned out it was just National Guardsmen, but it was shot in a way that they seemed like they were children. Mm. And you had these tweets that were like, Oh, you know, you don't have you don't have to go just to Africa to see child soldiers anymore. You know, so it was this way of I mean, it was uh it was unkind both to the US and to Africa at the same time, right? It was right. <laughs> you know, like, what it will we become Africa. But then mm. but the twist to that was immediately the tweet blew up and the person Uh, said, whoa, didn't expect this to blow up. Well, here, donate to these causes. (laughs) And so it it ended up not mattering uh, that they weren't child soldiers. By the time people had gotten that impression pe- that someone was already fundraising off it, but mm-hmm. they were actually fundraising. Um, it might've even been for a, a, something to support George Floyd, right? So it was this very right. complicated way of, uh, you know, this racist cliche being deployed, but then being used to fundraise for an ostensibly good cause. And, and I, I just thought that is what I'm trying to get at in a nutshell, though. The, the little story, mm-hmm. of this tweet is is precisely a way to read the child soldier that can, you know, unexpectedly be applied to Francophone African literature.
2: Right. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. I I really enjoyed that framing. Um and so turning now to your to your next chapter, which as you mentioned is about two films. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, two films that depict terrorists in very, very different ways. And that also begins with a contemporary reference. You talk about the New York Times podcast Caliphate, uh, which I admit I binged listened to when it first came out. I was completely hooked. Um it won all these awards. And then later, as you, of course, describe, uh, it was revealed that the first person source, uh, supposed ISIS executioner, had fabricated his testimony. Um, So what does this kind of anecdote illustrate for you about the mediation of the terrorist figure in Mm -hmm. in kind of contemporary Western media?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I was... I also, also binged the, uh, the podcast, even though I knew, <laughs> even though I knew, uh, that it was, it was ultimately debunked because they put a disclaimer, uh, mm. at the start of it by the time I started listening. Um, but yeah, I mean, so this, this podcast, which was meant to, um, you know give rare access to people that had acted as Isis as executioners and and had featured interviews with um, a man living in Canada who claimed to have uh, committed these executions and gave this really gory detail and and with, and it seemed as if we were getting this you know uh, kind of incredible access to these stories uh, and it turned out later that uh, it was almost certainly completely fabricated um, and and that a journalist, I think a reputable journalist had had I guess fallen, you could say, for this guy's fabrications because it was just such great content, mm, right? And right? Terrorists make great content. I think that that's what, regardless <laughs> of of whether or not you say you're critiquing the terrorists, you're trying to show how horrible they are, or whether it's the terrorists themselves that are using videos of what they've done for recruitment, it's mm. good content, um, and so that seems to put uh someone who wants to genuinely critique what these people are doing in a really difficult position because Mm -hmm. if the violence that an islamist terrorist uh is is perpetrating you know in this I think many people would say it's not in the name of something that is not Islam because Islam is not um uh represented by the values these people espouse um that if these people use their violence to glorify themselves, how can you how can you critique it? If you can't show mm-hmm. it, how can you critique it. If you can't talk about it, how can you critique it? Um, and then uh, the first film, I think, was a really good example. So the first film I look at is called Salifist, which interestingly uh, provided inspiration for Timbuktu, uh, which mm-hmm. would called, um, uh, which uh, the director, Abdurrahman Sisiko, was initially involved in this documentary and then, I believe, left the project but used. Um, some of the visuals from the documentary are almost, uh, you know, frame for frame in Timbuktu, but recreated fictionally. But but oh, okay. the idea with Feast is that a Mauritanian journalist goes to uh, Mali and sits down and interviews uh, these jihadists. And it's presented as, uh, it's, it's um, the filmmakers compare themselves to Claude Lanzmann in Showa, uh, mm-hmm. and, um, excuse me, in um, uh uh, yeah, the Tukwila and going uh, where he speaks with Nazi perpetrators, and they try to situate what they're doing in this sort of broader cinematic lineage of um, of uh, unfiltered access to this barbarism. You know, barbarism that can then help people understand what's going on. But, you know, the power dynamics between interviewing a, a Nazi, um, a former Nazi in, in post-war Germany versus interviewing uh, people that have taken over these towns in Mali and are controlling your access and you're mm. just putting a camera on them and hitting record for them to just give the theological justifications for what they've done. Um, uh, my argument is that this, this presentation is is far the uh, critique, um, mm. and uh, even though it's framed as such. Mm -hmm. um, In Timbuktu, what's interesting is that he gives very little space uh, for the jihadists to sort of pontificate, that their pontification, when it happens, is always framed as somehow hypocritical. I mean, these are people that smoke, these are people that, um, you you know, uh, sexually harass the wives of other people, while at the same time stoning um, people for adultery. Mm. Uh, But he also doesn't show almost any uh, graphic violence on screen. And mm-hmm. as in Salifis' the documentary, they actually show someone getting his hand chopped off in something that seems um, uh, identical to a propaganda video, but is not contextualized as such. Um, mm-hmm. The scenes of physical punishment in in Timbuktu, where you actually see um, physical violence against bodies, are uh, are framed in these ways that avoid gore, mm-hmm. but also um, give them a kind of uh give them a kind of meaning that manages to critique the violence rather than glorify it so i i think my my uh one of the most powerful examples from the film is a woman who's being whipped because um i believe uh, she refuses to wear gloves uh at the market to sell self. or oh no excuse me, i'm sorry it's a woman who was whipped for um uh for uh, singing in her home
2: oh uh, yeah
1: and as she's being whipped, the the sound you you have close ups on her face, and the sound of the lash becomes the beat, uh, the rhythm mm-hmm. of the song she begins to sing, as this mm-hmm. is happening. Um, and so, it it starts to mean that this artistic expression, the very act of trying to repress this kind of expression is creating the conditions for it to spring forth again, Mm. and essentially suggesting that this idea of creating this pure state with no, uh, with no music and none of these kind of things um, is is just a failed project is a, is a hopeless project. Um, Mm. And so here you have an act of of violence against a person, but being shown in a way that uh, that, turns it into a much, uh, much more powerful symbol of resistance, doesn't glorify it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of good say, say about
2: this. Yeah. I don't want so to... It, well, your reading of the films was just so fascinating. And you talk a lot about, um, you know, style, cinema, cinematographic techniques, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and you talk about in Timbuktu this use of slow slow cinema is is how you describe it so it's it seems like you're making this argument that a lot of this is is um um the that it's it's about how how violence is portrayed right um kind of through through style and you talk about Timbuktu as enacting a, a cinema of of mourning um so i think that the examples that you've you've mentioned kind of illustrate how that functions actually on on the screen
1: Um, Yeah, and and I think uh, to make a connection with the child soldier chapter as well, it's not immediately evident. That that is the kind of film that you're going to see. Uh, mm-hmm. It starts with uh, an iconic image of a pickup truck with a black flag with uh, with white writing, but uh, in which in, in Arabic, which appears, uh, you know, even if you don't speak Arabic, you would recognize that as an iconic image of uh, of Islamist fighters and people in pickup trucks with machine guns and and turbans, and uh, they're firing at a, they're firing at an antelope. They're then they're firing at these uh, these statues. Um, so it promises something, perhaps the the viewer that he's going to, that, that the viewer will have a narrative where he will get to see these bad guy villain terrorists, right, the ultimate boogeyman. Um, but that expectation is is ultimately subverted, because mm-hmm. um, it's not about showing that kind of spectacular violence that they themselves would use, we see them shooting statues, we see them shooting statues of people, which I think is okay. of, of suggesting um first off he's showing that the destruction of culture is is a proxy for you know mm. corporeal violence against people but there's also something so pathetic about these guys just shooting these little little statuettes so petty and pathetic um mm. so you know again it's a way to show them committing violence but without um uh, kind of a graphic voyeuristic uh images of bodies or things like that and um Mm-hmm. yeah and 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 to create space i think for us to reflect and and mourn both on, on on what has been lost in that part of the world and and i think also i think our inability perhaps to um uh or the limits of what we can do ourselves to intervene
0: mm.
2: and would you say also that with timbuktu it's it's more conscious of the ways in which terrorists use media themselves because you talk about that as well kind of how these films are reflecting on the use of media um you know for their own advantage um and so would you say that 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 film is trying to undermine that process whereas the other one is is perhaps doing the opposite
1: yeah ab- absolutely i mean there's one of the more well known scenes is is a young uh, recruit from france who's trying to shoot a propaganda video where he denounces rap as sinful and um, and he just can't do it. Um mm. and 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 he's being coached by someone saying okay you're going to talk about how it's uh you know just go say like okay, I found Allah and then you say this and he he's literally says in the film like then you say blah 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 you know death in, infidels it's presented as very performative mm. uh, whereas yes in the documentary um it's not contextualized that way at all. Um I I will say the film has been critiqued by some for for being too, quote unquote, gentle on the jihadists. I mean, they're shown mm-hmm. kind of figuring about, um, uh, you know, over cigarettes and, you know, making fun of someone who can't drive or arguing about soccer. And so some people have, have argued that his attempt to, um, you know, show them as sort of vulnerable human beings is, uh, it has goes too far in that in that direction. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't like come down uh, there, but I, I do understand that point. So um, mm-hmm. I just wanted to, acknowledge that as a critique of 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 the film
2: right yeah thank you for that um so maybe turning to the second half of your book because the last two chapters are really about the rwandan genocide as you mentioned at the beginning um and in the first chapter you examine specifically the emergence of survivor narratives in the wake of the genocide um and the and not just the narratives themselves, but the paratexts around the narratives, their forwards, the introductions, the celebrity endorsements, and the ways that they are packaged and marketed for mainly Western audiences. So could you um, just walk us through your argument about the role that you see Western intermediaries, as you put it, play in framing these stories um, and maybe just talking about some specific memoirs that you that you examine?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um so this this chapter was one that was probably the most uh personal because um I had actually met one of the Rwandan Tutsi authors Elise Rita Musumandera, um before she had uh begun her book project and and I had no idea that um yeah. uh, when I was in Rwanda she was a tour guide with a group I was um with from Bryn Mawr College uh and so um so you know I have a, a personal relation and I've mentioned this in the acknowledgments of a personal um Relationship with her, um, and then Esther Mugiwayo, um, who is the co-author of the other testimony, I had also met and you know had meals with and things like that. So um, you know there was uh, of all the of all the chapters, this one I, I felt uh, that sort of line between real world encounters and the literary encounters was was the most the most fluid. Um, but what what I was struck by was the mainstream uh, representations of Tutsi survivors. Um, Almost always fit into a couple frames. And often it was a forgiveness narrative. You know, isn't it mm-hmm. that uh, someone could uh, forgive or live next door to the person who had murdered their family? Uh, there was a New York Times uh, photo spread showing um, perpetrators and victims together. Um, and uh, I think without really reflecting on, um, the reasons why those people might feel compelled to <laughs> stand for those <laughs> pictures um that were not necessarily just um uncomplicated story of reconciliation. Mm-hmm. Um, and you also had on the uh, Oprah Winfrey uh show um reunites uh, uh family with um or children with their parents mm-hmm. um, uh even though the children already knew that the parents were alive. So there there was again talking about constructed, you know performative uh, visibility, but what kept coming up was the condition of visibility in mainstream media for that Western media mediator to pay attention to these individuals. The mm-hmm. condition of visibility seemed to be that you model something extraordinary, mm-hmm. extraordinary act of forgiveness, an extraordinary uh, amount of resilience and success following tragedy, uh, or an extraordinary, you know, story of of, uh, of a reunion with family. But in fact, the vast majority of survivors, I mean, the vast majority do not have this experience at all. Um, and so my argument is that this is essentially symbolic violence, which devalues right. and marginalizes survivors who uh, do not have an exemplary narrative to share. Mm-hmm. And so um, the uh, the two works that I principally look at in that chapter are survivors that very much um, confront that uh, that sort of non-linear, difficult um, aftermath, where it's something that's never really in your past, that it's something that you're always with. Um, but beyond that, the reason I focus on the paratext, the introductions, and you know the, the afterwards, and things like that, is that um, I noticed uh, the ways in which the Western editors and collaborators with these authors were really trying to model something for readers uh, they weren't just saying hey this person's incredible read their book sure they mm-hmm. were saying that you know these people they were very positive about the, the people whose books they were they were blurbing and writing about um but they were also talking about um the importance of listening the importance of not expecting something from a survivor as opposed mm-hmm. to if you read um the left to tell um and i try to be clear I'm very much criticizing the packaging. I'm not interested in, in, in picking apart her her story. She she lived through something that was quite horrific. Um, but the way it's packaged is that this person will change your life, this story will change your life.
2: Right.
1: And to go and read uh something like Le Livre d'Elise by Elise uh Mandara, where she where there the uh people that are writing the paratext are saying, This will not change your life, but you should still mm-hmm. listen. And mm. you think of this as your as you're accompanying someone on a, on on your walk, just as we walked Elise through the process of publication, take this walk with her with this book and listen and be open mm. and don't expect. And there's a phrase in the prayer text that I is I think is quite beautiful and and haunting, which is describes the the book as um, I think it's the fragile gift of a voice, mm. which is so different from saying modern day Mother Teresa, you know, or a modern day, it's just, a, it's a, it sets a very different set of expectations. And, and the final quick thing I'll say is that this was very different from how Western authored paratext to African writing has often been described, which is as exploitation and as, um, you know, someone taking advantage of a survivor or um, uh, to, you know, exploit their story for economic gain. And I, I wanted to focus on instances where, The paratext collaboration with western editorial editorial um uh professionals modeled something different more collaborative and more hospitable
2: Hmm. yeah no that it was such a fascinating read for me because i had i've i've actually seen immaculate uh illa speak in the past um and i bought her book because i was so moved by you know by her testimony and so um you know reading kind of I, I thought you did a really good job of showing that, okay, you're not here to approach these narratives with a prescriptive lens of saying, this is how survivors should tell their story or not tell their story, but you're kind of pulling apart the way that these stories are being deployed and used. And, and, in, you know, Ila Begiza's case, a, a lot of it, of what she t- says has been kind of co-opted by like the Christian right. And as an example of, you know, ultimate forgiveness, and she herself is very um, has the strong faith that she talks about, but, um, yeah, you bring vis- visibility to these issues in a way that I think is really, really needed and very powerful. Um, and it touches on that question of celebrity too, looking at Oprah and you know the, the, the people that get put in front of TV cameras um, versus those who are left behind. Um, so perhaps continuing on this idea of celebrity, um, your final chapter, this is really the focus of your final chapter, the celebrity humanitarian ally. Um, you raise a lot of important, points and some interesting debates also in this chapter, Uh, but the main focus is the Rwanda writing as a duty of memory project. So um, I was wondering for listeners who may not know, could you um, describe a little bit about what this project is and what your unique take on it is um, in this chapter?
1: Yeah. um, And so this, I should say this chapter was was probably the hardest to write and it's the one that's most different from the dissertation that this is Mm. based on. Um, But it's also one of the chapters that I've gotten the most positive feedback on and that I'm um, that I find myself the most compelled when I when I reread it. So
0: um,
1: Mm. so this chapter uh, talks about uh, the Rwanda writing as a duty
2: Rwanda Devoir. Devoir de memoir, yeah. Writing is a duty yeah. to remember, I think.
1: <laughs> I promise I do actually know it. i have just uh, uh, I
2: have it written out in front of me, so I'm little, cheating. A little bit
1: of post post-semester fatigue. So since I started <laughs> working on it over 20 years ago, I should yeah. But, <laughs> so um Rwanda par devoir de memoir, Rwanda writing is a duty to remember, um, is a fascinating project which uh, I don't know of any other um of collective writing project, editorial project, quite like it, uh, where in uh, in uh, about four years after the Tutsi genocide in Rwanda, um, two uh, journalists working in Lille, Maimuna um, Kuliwali from the uh, from the Cote d'Ivoire and Noki from Chad. Um, noticed that uh, African authors and filmmakers weren't really talking about the genocide in Rwanda, and they thought that this was a problem, and they used uh, some of their connections. They had organized some cultural festivals in Africa. They had some connections with Francophone authors, uh, like Boubka Boris Jop, Abdurrahman Waberi, veronique um, Tajou, um, some people that were uh, already fairly well known at the time, um, and some lesser known authors like Kosi Lamko, Uh, And uh, brought them to Rwanda, and they essentially uh, traveled the country um, for a couple for a couple weeks, and met with survivors, and uh, visited memorial sites like the the uh, Bihombi Technical School, where uh, they still have uh, bodies displayed, um, preserved in lime, and displayed for for people um, that people can can go and and visit, and and Mm -hmm. Um, and that after. Uh, after these travels in Rwanda speaking with survivors, they, uh, I was, I interviewed, uh, many of the people on the project. They said there was no obligation to write a book, which is something that gets lost often in discussions of the project, which suggests that, um, uh, it was a given that everyone who, who went on this, uh, went on this trip would write something. And it was incredibly difficult, uh, for them to do it. Uh, you know, they, they, as African writers, there was, of course, some, uh, overlap um, you know sort of with the Rwandan context, but it was of course vastly different at the same time from you know Senegal or from um, uh, or from the Ivory Coast where some of these authors were from. Um, but they ultimately produced um, a number of novels and travelogues about the genocide um, that um, gave it a lot of visibility and and were, uh, I think, much more uh, thoughtful and respectful of uh, survivors and the survivor experience than films like Hotel Rwanda or, you know, the documentary Shake Hands with the Devil or the frontline documentary The Ghosts of Rwanda. Um, and and this project had, had largely been, you know, uh, Praised and and rightfully so. And uh, but um, the more I read about it, the more I started to notice how uh, the one Rwandan participant in the project was never talked about. And I found this to be a very odd thing uh, to have so much praise for the project and what it did to give visibility, but within that scholarly response to the project. The one Rwandan author, uh, Venus Kayamahi, one of the first Rwandan men to publish a testimony uh, about the genocide, um, uh, was just completely ignored, often overlooked. Often people would sort of denigrate his style or say, "Well, it's we it can't really tell if it's a memoir or if it's a novel." And and um, and I I I sat down and I read it, and it was a difficult read, and it was clearly not done by a professional writer. Um, but it was a book that I felt was quite sincere and deserved respect and deserved attention Mm -hmm. and had 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 every opportunity to get it by being a part of this project and associated with these these high profile writers who had helped him write this book. And so this chapter first sets out and talks about how um, the celebrity authors who participated in this project, whose work I respect and who I respect as people, so it's not meant to be a critique of them per se, but that their celebrity status had Given their works more attention, and the result mm-hmm. of this was that the Rwandan participant in this project had been left out of the scholarly discussions. And when you read about survivors talking about their difficulty in being heard and feeling like people don't want to hear their stories, I felt a silence in like the scholarly archive about this project that had to be unpacked,
2: mm-hmm. um,
1: and and that's where the uh, that's where the fourth chapter came from.
2: Yeah, it, it's such a fascinating chapter because it deals with so many interesting questions, including, you know, the degree to which ac- academia itself, scholars um, are participating in kind of reproducing these discursive practices of celebrity that they're also critiquing. Mm-hmm. Um, so you you discuss that at length, and I find it such a fascinating point. And you're also looking and you're also providing a close reading of this of this narrative um, that you've just described. And, you know, the two are very linked because it, it, in a way it made me reflect that, yeah, like as scholars, we tend to focus on, you know, polished, teachable, um, you know, easily perhaps more like just just texts that are more known to the public Um because they make for great conference paper presentations or, you know, they sell more books, perhaps. Um, but this means, this can mean, and this often perhaps does mean that we're neglecting other texts which are equally important, um, you know, from from people that have firsthand experience of what's happening. Um, so I I really a- appreciated how you approached um uh Kayumahi's text about, about the genocide and how he how you kind of unpack what some might see as a, like flaws in his style as emotional vulnerability um as an expression of that
1: yeah yeah i think you know as as i started to read it i think everything that that had had made it easy to ignore you know it's not easy to read um it it doesn't have you know these uh uh, it doesn't have these these polished turns of phrase which can be very teachable and again this is not, you know mm-hmm. it's not an either or proposition you know i think ngũgĩ by buepkar joke um to have that as part entering the public discourse and imaginary as a novel about the Rwandan uh, the the Tutsi genocide is really important um but you can also the vulnerabilities of the prose the length this is, i mean i mean the the, the the guy i mean just you know to break it down on a very human level the guy was not present when his daughter was was killed, and got mm-hmm. secondhand reports of this happening. And he tries to uh, to reimagine and describe not just what happened, but what she might have been thinking and, mm-hmm. and his own uh, you know guilt. He imagines her kind of saying, "Where are you?" You know, and and. And I became, and again, you know, maybe I'm getting guilty of projecting myself into mm-hmm. it the way that I, I say we should be careful. But you know, becoming a, a father myself in the process of reading this book, you know, you, 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 th- that subject of filial grief and responsibility and guilt and all those kind of things. I mean, it's not presented in a polished way, but it's all there, mm-hmm. and not. Uh, I, I know very few especially at the time were Rwandan men who were who are writing about that um but when you read the whole but reading the whole book there's also these really long screeds against France and it's repetitive and things like that so it requires a certain kind of reading practice I think to to show how the vulnerabilities in the book are things that should be treated with respect respect and deserve to be a part of this of the conversation um and that ultimately I think is what I what I try to say in that chapter is that what I'm 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 not suggesting that you know having well-known francophone celebrity authors is is in and of itself a negative thing, but that we should cultivate reading practices that create space for texts to read alongside those. And that um and yeah, and that a text vulnerability uh I mean that it was eerie to read things like survivors, uh Rwandan survivors saying Tutsi survivors. Because my story, my story bothers people. It doesn't fit into a into a neat package, and I know people don't want to hear it and they tune it out. And then to read a, read scholars saying, well, it's not really history. It's not really testimony. It's like the least successful book. Um, it, it was just eerie to see those those echoes. And so to, um, but rather than 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 hammer that point. Recenter this myself and the scholars by saying, how could you do that? This is a moral failing that you ignored this text. It's like, okay, fine. This happened. What kind of reading practice could have recuperated this and what's maybe a path forward towards um, making sure we're attentive to, uh, uh, to texts that we might not otherwise pay attention to that deserve our respect and attention.
2: Yeah. And it makes me think too, that, you know, there's, there's different, uh, you know, these texts aren't necessarily written for the purpose of consumption. You know, there's other purposes to this, this writing and writing is healing and writing, writing as, as, you know, a a way of processing something um, is, you know, just as important, even though it might make it more um, opaque for, for other readers, but there's also, you know, an argument to be made in favor of opacity of these texts as Clisson would say. Mm -hmm. Um, So you yeah just just talk just going back to this idea of celebrity um which was so interesting in this chapter you um yeah you talk about the ways in which academics and even francophone african authors themselves reproduce these kind of discursive practices of celebrity that we can critique in uh, you know figures like George Clooney, for instance. Um, so could you speak a bit more about how you're using celebrity here as a lens um, to think about um, Rwanda the literature of the Rwandan genocide but but um, African cultural production more generally and how are the ways in which scholarship um, and scholarly allyship um, might resemble this these acts of celebrity yeah. humanitarianism? Yeah
1: that's that's a really great question. Um, and this was a in some ways an uncomfortable chapter to write and I kind of um, addressed that a little bit in the text, which is that um, you know I a lot of these authors that I call you know Afropolitan celebrity authors are people that I know that I've spoken with. Um, but that again is is part of I think the the issue is that, Um, you know, there is, and I'm certainly not the first person to have commented on this. There is, there can be this kind of cozy relationship between, um, uh, between, uh, academics, uh, you know, uh, Francophone African world and the people that they write about and that you can look at this as a stance of allyship, you know, that these are, if you have a white scholar from the U S who is publishing a volume that's celebratory of, um, of voices of, of uh, black writers from France or the African diaspora in France or African writers, you know, that that is uh, the way I think to understand that is that that is meant to be an act of, of allyship. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, w- w- when you read even just a little bit about what it means to be an ally, what it means to be a scholar you know, or what it means to be someone with a certain amount of privilege and cultural capital part of that is a process of self-reflection and and critique about what these practices might obscure. Mm-hmm. And so when I noticed that, wait a second, uh, we're focusing much more on these celebrity authors, Frank, well, I mean, within the world of Francophone, Francophone Frank- 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 literature are getting a lot more press than people whose stories I think could be part of the conversation. Well, that's a moment to rethink this, this allyship stance, right? Mm-hmm. If, if, if our form of allyship is giving voice predominantly to, uh, authors who who produce more polished texts. Um, I think we need to rethink that a little bit and think about some different practices that we can employ. Um, but I felt even even saying that felt a little bit. You know, I even mean, I even feel uncomfortable a little bit talking about it now because <laughs> <laughs> because you know you you you're sort of setting yourself up to say wait are you saying that uh you know i'm just i'm i just wrote about this author because you know we have this cozy mutually dependent relationship and i'm trying to like you scratch my back i scratch yours and you know da, da, da. like you know you could I, I felt like i was writing words that could be twisted to to mm-hmm. uh seem more kind of scolding or accusatory than than i meant um but i what i really meant was that what I was really trying to get at was that um, just just make sure there's space to step back from time to time and say, okay, you know, what are the advantages, but also the limits of this system of culture production in which a certain kind of writer who who knows how to how to play the media game, as in any context, francophone African or not, is getting a lot of attention, and you know, uh, and often that attention can be deserved, and the art that's being produced is of very high quality. Um, But if promoting that work, being an ally with those figures sometimes seems to preclude other kinds of narratives from seeing the light, let's make space for that and have that be okay. Have that be okay to step back. And so, and and I try to, you know, as I do to come back to what you said, I try to model my own sort of changes and reflections on my positionality and relationship to what I study and and to to model some of my own vulnerability. I think that um, the stance of the scholar is just the all knowing um, kind of, you know, authority uh, digging in their heels and defending their their opinions, you know, for their whole career uh, is not a model that I aspire to. And not one that my many of my colleagues do either. I, I feel like I should add, <laughs> I think it is, things aren't changing, yeah.
2: No, but I think it's, I thought it was just really fascinating that you're kind of bringing, the work that scholarship does into your reflections in your book, because I think that, you know, academics, I mean, we like to think of ourselves sometimes as, Oh yes, we're just, we're making these, these, these choices and, and, you know, by our own volition and, and, but we're, we're not immune from the forces that are, (laughs) that are at play in in the publishing world and in in media. And in fact, sometimes I think we're not interrogating that enough. And, and so I think that by calling attention to that, it, I, i think it will maybe my hope is raise more awareness and get people to maybe to think more critically about their themselves and like what what they're actually participating in and you know whose voices we're paying attention to and whose are we silencing i think i think there's a lot to unpack there because there's you know, um, the risk too of oh, if I'm working on someone no one's heard of, you know, no one's going to care about my work. You know, how right. do you, h- how academia as as a system is kind of upholding some of this is, is yeah. something to interrogate as well.
1: And it's it's interesting too because it connects, you know, also to the some of the writers, you know, that that push the politics of artistic production and the and the reality versus, you know, uh, what maybe an artist actually wants to produce and how you reconcile those things. I mean, I you know the way the we are part of a system that is flawed. And I think as, you know, the, the uh, incentives for getting tenure and publication, I think, determine a lot, you know, to a large extent, what, what is visible. And so, you know, that is not going to change overnight, but finding ways to navigate that so that you're um, not, uh, not reproducing some of the, um, you know, some of the, I guess, the the more negative aspects of that is very difficult, but I think Mm -hmm. we can be honest about that and, and, um, and incorporate that into our, into our practice, not, and not pretend that it's not, uh, not pretend that it, that it's not going on, but that doesn't mean, you know, burning everything down. I mean, I think it's <laughs> it's not a call to do everything from scratch, but just kind of mindfully, thoughtfully, reflectively, you know, keep moving forward.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I thought it was really fascinating. I think readers will really, really appreciate, um, your reflections there. Thank you. Um, so perhaps, um, a couple questions to conclude. Um, one is about your conclusion, which I think begins in a brilliant way. Um, you describe an insurrection that happened, um, in a former british colony uh <laughs> which happens to be the united states um on january 6th mm-hmm. and you're kind of pointing to content more contemporary events of violence and their mediation um since you know after the period that you look at mass shootings january 6th uh you mentioned the war in ukraine we could add the war in gaza to that list um unfortunately um so you're reflecting on these, and and I guess just could could you share some of your questions that you raise in this conclusion about how francophone African authors um, might rethink or position themselves differently in the future in this in this particular context, this post post Cold War, this post Trump post truth post X uh, whatever we want to call it moment that we're in. Like, what are some of the questions that these events are provoking for you? Yeah,
1: yeah that's a really that's a really good question um and it was interesting the the book was originally scheduled uh in my mind to come out a little bit sooner and so it it could have come out before the invasion of ukraine mm. uh maybe even before january sixth and so it was um it was sobering i think to be writing the conclusion in the context of these of these events um uh of these events that were being mediated um you know i think in ways that we'd never quite seen before i mean having you know ticked uh, you know live streaming of things going on in in ukraine and then similarly uh, you know what we're having in the kind of propaganda war that's happening on on twitter right now uh with images from gaza and, and from the middle east um so uh i you know it, i'm i'm sorry in some ways that the some of what i'm writing about in terms of mediations of violence from uh from distant spaces is so relevant but it does it does feel it does feel relevant uh today i i think i mean part of it is um you know the immediacy of these images that we're getting as mm-hmm. opposed to uh you know a book or a film where there's been some time and some distance to reflect and a chance to um you know give some critical distance uh i, I think part of it is is a call to to keep that in mind um you know, there's a kind of impossibility of of knowing um, what's happening from some kind of frenetic, you know, clips. And yet those are the ones we're most emotionally drawn to, right? Mm-hmm. The ones that are the least likely to give, give some kind of critical distance. Um, but if I look at, um, you know, is Not Obliged, I think a big part of uh, the child soldier story, I mean, to connect with, you know, you mentioned Ukraine and Gaza is he draws us in with a spectacular and then he gives us a history lesson.
0: Hmm.
1: and and it provides a template i think for um for how we can think about our own consumption of this kind of media i mean you're going to get drawn in by what's happening in in, in the middle east and, and ukraine and you're going to see images that are going to have an emotion um but that novel which is in the african context seems to argue for okay you're drawn in okay you're a human that's normal now go do some reading you mm-hmm. know now go take take a beat take some space you know um do that with your, do that with your emotions, you know? And um, so I think there's some of that, there's some of that in the book um, and there's some of that in the conclusion. Um, You know, I think it's gonna be very interesting. I've mentioned graphic novels. I mentioned some of the things I wasn't able to talk about, graphic novels, um, digital storytelling, Mm -hmm. Uh, there's there's transmedia storytelling. I think we're gonna have um, some really, really interesting uh, representations going forward. but I, I think the the book ultimately, you know, ends on, I try to end on kind of a small note, uh, which is to say, um, you know, I think we can, we can get a little sort of hyperbolic or maybe, um, uh, I don't know, self aggrandizing sometimes about our own, um, the importance of our engagement with these topics just for its own sake. Uh, and so, um, for people to really think, okay, you know, uh, reading a survivor testimony—if um, anything, it, it's the Rwandan survivor testimonies. I mean, the geographic, economic hurdles to returning to Rwanda are so great. But to think about how you respond to stories of suffering in your own community, how would you, how mm-hmm. you respond to someone? And this is Alexander doshroth's book concludes with something similar. Um, that if that process of critical self-reflection starts, uh, and this, and some awareness of how to balance an emotional response with a critical distance that allows you to understand the context in which these events happen, that that overall, I think, can have a productive impact on on folks. But that that really depends on the person who's consuming the media, the cultural context they're consuming it in. Um, I mean, I'm 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 struck with how much. Um, just to give an example, one, one thing in Rwanda uh, in the images is you'll see pickup trucks with a flag on it,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, you know, big flag. And, and um, you know, when I see uh, uh, pickup trucks driving around now with massive flags, uh, <laughs> uh, without going into to more detail, um, <laughs> that echo sets off a whole chain of thought that makes me think of similarities in terms of um, just rhetorical similarities between mm. uh, what was happening in Rwanda prior to the genocide and sometimes what we see now in our own cultural context. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, that's my, as an American, that's a way that this work has informed my consumption of my, you know, kind of current uh, current landscape. Um, and so I, I think we're in a time of great uncertainty, but mm. resources exist if people know, um, if people have a template for how to consume these horrific images coming from overseas? What to do with the emotions that they feel when that happens? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that I'm hoping the conclusion is encouraging people to um, that there is a path. Mm. <laughs> there is a path to consuming this media and to having a reaction, but that path could be very different uh, for different people, and uh, it could lead to very local. Reading about Rwanda doesn't mean you have to go to Rwanda. Um,
0: mm.
1: it, it could. Um, it could change your perspective or change your, your, your method of intervention um, with vulnerable, vulnerable populations in many, many different ways. And so
0: mm-hmm.
1: that's what I try to get, get to at the end of, of the book is uh, you know, this is not one size fits all. And, but right. you know, um, yeah, but it was hard to conclude. I mean, conclusions are hard.
2: <laughs> conclusions are hard, but you did a really great job. It was, and there's, a, there's even more in there that we could get into, but um, I feel like, you covered a lot of really important points. Um, so George, before I let you go, um, what do you, what are you working on now? What are you looking forward to working on in the future? Um, where are you headed next?
1: That's that's a great question. Um, immediately right now, I'm I'm teaching a winter term class called Eco-Criticism in the Zombie Film. Um, so oh. my immediate preoccupation <laughs> is a little removed uh, from... Uh, a little removed from from this, you know, the book. Uh, but that comes out of um, my friendship and work with uh, Dr. Lucy Swanson at the University of Arizona, who just published an excellent book on uh, on the zombie in the in the French Caribbean. Um, I I don't have a um, a set in stone book project at the moment. I think I have the in some ways the luxury of being at an institution that um, that values teaching a tremendous amount, and so. Mm-hmm. Uh, Speaking of institutional pressures, I don't have the institutional pressure for a second monograph that some people have, for better or or for worse. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm right now. I have an article on. Um, uh, racial stereotypes and comedic strategies in French television comedy on the, on the show mm. is uh, Ash and Platon, uh, which is, uh, based on, it's actually co-authored with, um, Isaac Kobo who graduated from St. Mary's college where I teach for years ago. And so that has been, uh, accepted with revisions. Uh, and I'm now, <laughs> um, and that's been a really, really interesting project. Um, and then the other project, um, is actually related to, um, just my love of languages. I got into French because I loved learning French and I didn't think much beyond that. Uh, <laughs> my sabbatical year, um, I started learning Spanish and Haitian Creole um, and traveled to Tijuana and was able to meet uh, with the Haitian community there uh, and have connected with a um, uh, a doctoral student named Natasha Swiderski, who's working on um, multisensorial anthropology. And in fact, in speaking with her, I found I started realizing how much of my trips to Haiti and to Rwanda and my interest in just meeting people and talking with them and getting to know these spaces, um, aligned with uh, this multi-sensorial anthropology um, discipline. And I've I've been Mm -hmm. really talking with her about that. Uh, And so we, um, I probably, I hesitate, well, I'll I'll try to be uh, sufficiently opaque for a project that's just starting, but we are looking at the possibility of uh, co-editing a volume on Haitian diasporas in um in the americas uh so Mm. uh, mexico south america central america um so it's a little different from what uh from what was in the book um uh but um you know it it i I think if there's one thing i've I've learned is that um you know i'm interested in global mediation and i found Mm -hmm. myself Old, to look at regions also outside of Africa um, and to see you know some of the political dynamics uh, happening there and to think about my own positionality and my own interest in those regions. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm also in a department that uh, a small department with one French colleague but uh, anywhere from four to five <laughs> um, Latin Americanists. And so, um, collaboration mm. with colleagues as well has has led me in that in that direction. So I'm I'm hoping that uh, that uh, the co-edited volume that or co-edited um, um, project will come to fruition. But that's still the early days. But I I do um, full transparency. I'm I'm happy to be at a place that really values my teaching, and it's been really. Mm to share some of the stuff in my books, um, that, that, excuse me, some of the stuff in the book, uh, uh, with, with my students. So we'll see about the second, about the second monograph. I'm trying to let this one breathe. I'd like to read, read a review of the first one. (laughs) That's what I've told myself. I want to read one review, one written review of the book. There you go. Where I want to go from there, but, but. <laughs> well, you consider- certainly
2: have earned yourself a little bit of a breather for sure. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of times it's in that teaching experience that you get you know, ideas for, for what sure. you want to work on next, for sure. yeah. well, George, thank you so much. This has been I loved reading your book. Um, I highly recommend it to all listeners. it's it's a fascinating read. i It actually was, you know, a bit of a page turner, I have to say, which I can't say about many academic books, but I felt this one, I felt very, like, you know, very compelled as I was reading through it. Um, Thank you very much. Well, thank you. And uh, yeah, best of luck to you and best wishes for your, for your projects ahead.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much. You too.